Future Hacker Life Path Future. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Future Hacker. I'm your host, Maria Taigi, and today we're talking to Professor Michael Zaida. Michael is the founding director of USC's Computer Science Games program and a professor of engineering practice in the USC Department of Computer Science. At USC, he founded the Computer Science Games program and took it to the first games program in the world, ranked number one by Princeton Review for 10 of the last 11 years. Zaida is an ACM fellow, IEE fellow, and IEEE Virtual Reality Technical Achievement Award winner, a senior member of the National Academy of Inventors, a fellow of the Asia-Pacific Artificial Intelligence Association, member of the editorial board and games column editor, IEE Computer Magazine. Zaida is a distinguished collaborator for the Stanford Human Perception Laboratory affiliated with the Institute for Human-Centered AI. He's also an advisor to several startups involved in new technologies and innovations. His experience goes on and on and on, but I'll leave a part so he can tell him himself, which is going to be way more interesting than listening from me. Hello, Professor Michael Zaida. How are you doing? It's so great to have you with us today. I'm great. I did my swim. <laughs> you know, reading your whole bio, which I wasn't able to do it right now. It should take it a couple of weeks. <laughs> it just seemed to me that you, you, you just have a thing for being involved in projects ahead of your time. That's what I felt, right? So as much as this is something exciting and, and for sure you don't seem to have a, you know, boring life at all. There's always the challenge of being an early adopter of, you know, having to convince more traditional minds to make funding and resources available for your projects. So my very first question to you is, what have been your main challenges in your career? And now that we finally got into this metaverse trend in which everybody has to say that they're somehow in, did it make it any easier to innovate? Oh, wow. You know, you ask a, a, a very complicated question. The truth of the matter is there's always a point when a new term comes out and everybody runs to it. 1990s, mid-90s, everyone in the Department of Defense was building visual simulation systems. And when virtual reality became really big, they all decided they were going to rename what they were doing as virtual visual simulations as virtual reality or virtual environments. Now we see that same thing again, which is everyone who's been doing work in network games is now renaming what they're doing the metaverse or a portal to the metaverse. And in fact, one of the articles I wrote recently for IEEE Computer is let's rename everything the metaverse. It just solves the problem. We do it right now. You know, you're a metaverse, I'm a metaverse. There are no people who are not metaverse, I, and uh, away we go. But, you know, the, the truth of the matter is there's always, you know, if you're a professor, you're always trying to raise money. If you're building startups, you're always trying to raise money. So the answer is if you had tried to, let's see, let's go back to 2014, 2015, which is sort of the latest virtual reality wave. In those years, you could easily get money for new headsets. So in fact, I got to go to one place in Nanjing, China, 
where there was a company and their whole business was to provide software that allows you to write once and it would run on 75 different headsets that had been made by Chinese engineers. It was interesting because at that same time, if you had gone off to anybody in 2015 and said, I, you know, I need some money to build content for this virtual reality headset, they all probably would have said, no, we only want to invest in tech, which is new headsets. And so, you know, we spent a whole lot of time not building much in the way of content, not making standards for interaction, you know, in content. The, the idea being that if, if I'm in one virtual reality headset and playing one game, and then I go to play game number two, and it's a completely different user interface, which means it takes a little bit of struggle to uh, get to figure out what you do in that environment to press go and to select things. And they're all kind of different. You know, the computing industry has gotten to the point where if you use a Mac computer and you need to use a PC, you can use a PC. Some things are a little bit hard to find, but they're not so horrible and it's not impossible. You can have programs that run on both and you can use them on both platforms in terms of virtual environments and now the metaverse. Everyone's building uh, things that are completely different. If you go and buy your second and third game for the Oculus Quest 2, you know, the interfaces don't match and it's complicated. I think uh, that's one of the biggest issues. So it's interesting how user experience is not prioritized. It's just who wants to be ahead of the game in terms of, of the technology they're providing, right? Yeah, you know, people think of user experience as those are the people who come after we've done everything. And the problem is, is what you really want them is, is in the front, which is before you write a line of code, somebody's at least done a concept diagram, of a, you know, a document on you know, what should the user interface be and how do we make it standardized across all of the games that are there. So if, you, if you've ever built an app for the iPhone or iOS or I, you know, iPad OS, there are standard user interface guidelines that tell you how to do stuff. And if you follow those, then anybody who plays your app can play another app with or another game rather simply. We're in this primitive stage in the metaverse that you know virtual environments that uh, make it very difficult. You know, so user interface has got to be there. And also the fact that there's not much money to go off and build a new app. You know, do I really have money to, to, to buy a user interface person to help me out? Do I, do I even have any money to do a Q&A team that's going to go and play this, you know, 15 different ways and 75 different headsets so that they can come back and say, you know what, this is kind of broken. I have to get the experience. I, I, I went and bought a Magic Leap One headset. I thought, well, Magic Leap had uh, you know a couple of billion dollars to burn. They would probably do something right. You know, it was it was kind of the strangest experience because all of a sudden I got this call the day before saying we're delivering your Magic Leap headset tomorrow between two and five, three hour window, but we can only deliver it to the shipping address that USC has given us. So you have to be in that office and say, well, that's not my office. That's the admin woman who orders stuff for me's office. So I had to sit in her office. You know, she had an empty desk next door for two, two, you know, two to five. And at five o'clock, of course, the Magic Leap person came and goes, well, it will just take us a little while to set up this headset. So I, and, we, and are you the user of this particular unit? And I said, well, I guess let's start. And it took, uh, I think, 45 to 50 minutes to 
get it set up for me in that world. And which means, you know, almost six o'clock. And it was just like so horribly complicated that user interface, like, gosh, if you build this without, you had lots of money. Why didn't you spend it on user interface? I was uh, part of the organization of what Chi 92, you know, it's a computer interaction uh, conference uh, from ACM. And it just makes total sense if you've ever gone to one of those to really be into this. Although it's, you know, user interface is not sexy. Right? Building the new hardware is the sexy, manly thing. That's so interesting to hear uh, in a world where it's so trendy to say that, you know, we are customer-centric, right? It's, it's such, such a different word from... Yeah, customer-centric from customers who don't actually use our device. You know, and, and we do this lean and mean thing, which is if we have a startup, we barely have enough money to have an extra unit, one unit that's ready to go. And you want to give this device to someone brand new, they have to get in there and want to be in there. And the other thing you'll, you'll notice uh, that sort of worries me about things like the Oculus Quest 2 is when my students use them and build projects with them in class, they build their projects, we get to the end of the semester, and we have a demo day, and we have someone put the headset on. And they'll get in there, and they'll struggle to figure out the user interface. And at about the three-minute point, they go, oh, I've seen enough. I haven't seen anybody who wants to spend more than like three, four, or five minutes. If you got somebody in there for 10 minutes, you know, usually what you find out is that the screen was black and there was a, a wire that was not connected and they were kind of didn't want to say anything that maybe they weren't seeing it properly. Now, yeah, I, I would definitely want to get uh, deeper into that. But, you know, before that, and this is still about your bio. So you just have this great story about how you've started to think about gaming for education which involved your time working for the Army. So could you share this with your listeners? Sure. I mean, you know, I get to direct the development of the America's Army game from uh, May of 2000 until March of 2004. And what we found when we shipped the first, ver you know, the 1.0 version of the game on July 4th, 2002, and this is a long time ago, I would have a lot of mothers come up to me and say, my son is playing America's Army seven days a week, six hours a day, what's going to become of him? And I'd say, well, the Army is counting on the fact that he has been exposed to what the Army is about and that when he turns 18, he's going to be twice as likely to consider a career in the Army. And the mothers always would, would say something like, couldn't we make games to be educational where they can actually learn something? And I would, would always ask them the question back. I said, there's a whole section of the America's Army game, which you can go learn to customize your weapons in the game. Did your sons do that? They go, oh, God, yeah, he knows everything about weapons. And did he go and go visit the barracks? And they go, yeah, he visited the barracks. He knows exactly where everything is. And so what, what we found is that, you know, the kids who were playing this game really got to know a whole lot about the Army. Now they could know other things. Now we had, when we went to the, 2.0 version of the game, wanted to put in a combat medic. What we wanted to do is put a classroom in there, and we built a full 3D classroom with other students in there and a teacher at the front, all in BDUs. And if you walked in there, you could get a seat, and you could watch PowerPoint lectures inside of a game. And you could watch the first three lectures of basic combat life-saving in the game. When 
we proposed this to the, when, we, when my team built this for our game, I'm like, no one's ever going to play that part of the game. Who's going to go in a game and watch PowerPoint? And we did it anyway. So you could go in there, you could watch the lectures. And at the end of the three lectures, you got a multiple choice test. It's the same multiple choice test you got if you were actually in the army taking, watching these three lectures. And if you pass that test, you know, you could act as a combat medic in the game. When we shipped the game, we had something on the order of 50% of the people who played the game went and got their certificate to be basic combat lifesaver in the game, which meant they could heal themselves, they could heal their friends, and, uh, you know, have a leg up on the game. I thought that was pretty interesting. And the Army even got a letter while I was still running the project. I think it was sent to the Secretary of Defense, who sent it to the Secretary of Army, who sent it to the colonel who was the program manager, who we got a copy, which was somebody was walking by an accident scene and they saw someone who was injured and they said, well, I've taken this basic combat life-saving course and I'll use those skills to go help this person lying on the ground because there's no ambulance yet. And they went and saved that person's life and that person wrote this wonderfully nice letter to the army. The whole notion that you could learn inside of a game such that you could then apply it in the real world, we, we started calling that collateral learning, which is we weren't really trying to build an educational game. We were trying to build something that would give you this experience that you could go play the game and think, then think about, well, maybe I want to be a combat light medic in the army. And um, it turned out to have this wonderful experience of you know, educating people on that. So, so then yeah, I started thinking about there must be other things that we can do. And so I, so I had a full development team of 26 people, and they were very talented people. When the America's Army Project ended with respect to my involvement, uh, 20, 20 of those people on the team instantly had a job at places like, you know, senior producer for World of Warcraft and, and all these great places. And it's like, oh, they all ended up there. That was kind of inspired me to, to leave working for um, the Naval Postgraduate School because I saw all my great people going to do great stuff in the games. In games, I said, hey, I want to be there too. So I started talking to the then Dean of Engineering at USC, Max Nikias, uh, saying, bring me to USC, give me some startup money for research, and we'll go off and you know focus on how to educate people with games. So I've been thinking about education for games for a long time. But what was kind of odd is once America's Army was shipped, I ended up getting interviewed like 200 times and lots of program managers wanted to build their own game so they could you know, educate people about a particular training thing in the military. And we uh, said, well, do you have some funding? And they all said, well, uh, what is it called? You know, the game is free. You can download it from the internet. I said, well, if you want us to build something special, like some characters and that are different from what's in the game now and build some training based on some kind of subject matter expertise, then we kind of need money. And honestly, we never, we never really found it, which is sort of sad because it was the, the wonderful opportune time to, to make this happen. It is because it's one of your projects that were ahead of the time. Today, you can hear about gamification, about everything for learning, for you know, new languages and businesses, right? And it was so long ago that, that, that you already noticed this, this, this opportunity. So I'm actually even an advisor to a startup called Moe, which is in Shenzhen, in China. 
And we tried to get funding in the United States from a variety of uh, venture capitalists. We got nowhere. The students who were, were three Chinese students who had dropped out of the PhD program at UCLA. They went to uh, Shenzhen. They founded this company to build AI tools for authoring games for education. And it was kind of cool. It looked beautiful. A lot of great computer graphics, a lot of great physically-based modeling in there that runs in real time. And they basically were thinking, well, we should make it so the teachers can write the games. And so we went um, and started looking for funding. Uh, the first funding we got from was the Minister of Education in Beijing. And uh, they were very supportive. And then I got some funding from uh, Chairman of Yalong. Yalong is the largest cable and wire manufacturer in the world. So we've turned it into this company that's got this tool. And we are also building a part of our company where we're building stores, like the Apple Store, for education, for educational games. And so we actually have a catalog of some 10,000 educational games you can come into the store and talk to smart people who will say oh your your son is or daughter is in first grade these are the subjects they ought to learn and these are the games we recommend and they can buy them from the store they can go online and get them there it's interesting because we're looking at building ten thousand stores in almost every city in you know major city in china and getting money over there has been amazingly simple the people, over there, the people in China are very interested in education. Over here, you know, when I first started at USC and I didn't see much in the way of Def Department of Defense interest in games or education, we tried things like uh, foundations, sort of crazy things like the MacArthur Foundation had a program to offer you $50,000 to analyze an existing educational game to see its efficacy in education. And uh, the truth of the matter is... That's a tiny amount of money. There was no one who had money for studying an interesting way of providing education through games to anyone. So that was somewhat discouraging. One of the things that I did got to do is I got to give a talk at uh, ETS, Educational Testing Services. And in the audience were 500 teachers. You know, I thought, well, I'm going to go give a talk. And, and my talk the title, if I recall correctly, is how do we replace all teachers with educational games? And I tried to do it from information theory, which was, you know, in 2006, the uh, World of Warcraft had come out and the person playing World of Warcraft at that time was spending, spending something on the order of 288 hours in that game over a six month period. You know, and I started thinking, well, if I'm in Los Angeles Unified School System, and I'm getting 45 minutes of math and 45 minutes of science every day, an hour and a half. And there's, uh, what was it? I think 180 days of the school year, something like that. And it turned out to be 270 hours of education and math and science. And I said, well, that's just like World of Warcraft. And I said, if I had enough money like World of Warcraft, I could replace all of math and science for one year of schooling for the cost of building World of Warcraft. So yeah, I think at the time I was told it was something on the order of 140 million. So I rounded down to 100 million. I said, if I want to do all K through 12, you know, 13 years of schooling with games, then I need, you know, 100 million times 13, you know, 1.3 billion. So for $1.3 billion, I could go and hire 
superstar game designers, game developers, and build games for education for all math and science for K through 12. And that was the thought I had back then. And I said, God, that's not so much money. I mean, if, you, if we spent $2 trillion in Afghanistan to replace the Taliban with the Taliban, then we, we certainly could, you know, so I think it's like 1,500 times less money to go and build educational games. So, and, and do you see China as being more evolved compared to other countries when it comes in investing in this type of gaming experience for education? You know, China is big in technology for education. The Chinese people have, a, I believe, it looks to me like they have a fantastic educational system because when I get their students at USC, they're fantastic. Their math and science background is way stronger than your typical American who comes into school. So... I look at it as education-friendly country. A lot of food for thought right here. I think it's a great way to end our first episode. I have still so much to ask you. So stay tuned, everybody. We're going to continue for a second episode with Professor Michael Zaida. Future Hacker. Life. Path. Future. Future.